This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson, Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Not long ago, Economist Magazine reported that uh, exactly what everybody already knew. It's a truth, they said. It's a truth universally acknowledged that inequality is high and rising. And analysts have documented that truth with official U.S. government statistics. In 2017, the earned income of the top 20% of American households was almost 17 times higher than that of the income of the bottom 20%, 17 times. At the top, they earned 222,000, 222,000. Those at the bottom, just 13,000. Multiply 13,000 by 17, and you get a number pretty close to 222,000. That's a huge difference. Even worse, the percentage living in poverty has hardly budged over the past 50 years. The average wage for ordinary workers has barely kept pace with inflation. All this is bad, and all of this can be proven with official U.S. government data. But these are false facts. None of this is true. Indeed, the numbers are wildly off the mark. So say three economists in a recently released book entitled The Myth of American Inequality, How Government Biases the Policy Debate. The authors are Phil Graham, Robert Eklund, and John Early, all respected scholars and analysts in their field. And I'm very pleased to have with me today on the Education Exchange, Phil Graham, a former U.S. Senator from Texas, who also happens to be an economist, believe it or not, an economist and a U.S. Senator. I don't know if there's many others like that. Currently, he's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. So, Senator Graham, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thank you. Well, Senator, you say that the facts I just told our listeners are false. Well, how can that be? How can you make that claim? And why is the government giving us incorrect information? Well, the Census Bureau calculates household income and has since 1947, and it's the building block of all of our measures of well-being. But the problem is, in 1947, they counted as income only cash equivalent payments. There weren't many payments in kind where other people paid for something and gave it to you. A private example would be hospitalization insurance, government contribution to your pension program. A public example would be Medicaid, food stamps, et cetera. But in 1960, by 1965, the private sector was paying a lot of payments in kind, in fringe benefits, and the government in the new poverty program had almost all of its programs pay for something on behalf of poor people. And so the way the census has, since 1947, calculated income, it has not counted two-thirds of all transfer payments that are provided by federal, state, and local government. And they include things like uh, Medicaid, where government pays your health care bill, 
food stamps where government gives you a debit card and you go to the grocery store and buy your groceries, housing subsidies where government pays uh, for your rent, your housing cost, and over a hundred other federal programs are not counted by the census as income to people who receive the benefits. Census also does not take into account taxes. So it doesn't count refundable tax credits where the government gives a refundable tax credit to someone who is poor. It's a check from the treasury, but yet it doesn't count as income. And on the other end of the income spectrum, the government doesn't take taxes into account. 82% of the taxes are paid by the top 40% of earners. Yeah, but I get a social security check. I don't know why I get a social security check because I'm still working, but I, I get a social security check and, and they count that as income. I, they asked me to they pay count that as They count that as income. So that's uh, the exception. Yeah, there and there are other exceptions for people who are classified as being poor. About 90% of their income comes from transfer payments and about 10% of their income comes from fund, uh, income they have either earned in the past through pensions or earning now. Government doesn't count about nine-tenths of those transfer payments. Well, if you include those transfer payments into the equation, then the bottom 20%, the poorest quintile, the lowest 20%, they get not 13,000, but what do you calculate to actually receive on an annual basis? About for in 2017, which is a hard number now because we have all the data, uh, it was $45,300 of transfer payments. So back and, in 2017, I'm going to ask you to update that later on, but let's not so get into that. percent of income earners. Yeah. So. Uh, so just look at it this way. In, in 1967, when the war on poverty ramped up its funding, the average household in the bottom 20% of income earners was getting $9,300 of transfer payments from federal, state, and local governments. Today, or, in night, or in 50 years later, uh, they were getting $45,300. And yet, the poverty rate, which had fallen dramatically from 1947 to 1967, for 50 years, while that massive transfer was occurring, the poverty rate oscillated between 14% and 11%. Now, how is that possible? In fact, how is it possible that uh, you can have a 12% poverty rate when the average household in the bottom 20 percentile of earners is getting $45,300 of transfer payments from government? The way it's possible is the census does not count two-thirds of all transfer payments, and it doesn't take into account taxes. Well, what would be the poverty rate if you did take that into account? About 2 to 3%. So you're saying the true poverty rate in the United States today is 2 to 3%. We almost don't have any poverty then. That's what statistically, 
we have provided enough resources to eliminate poverty. Well, then how about about all those homeless people out there on the streets? That's what I was about to say. The problem is you've got two to three percent of people who are incapable of taking care of themselves and the people that they're responsible for that have got mental problems or drug abuse problems. And the poverty program largely does not reach them. No matter what you spend on food stamps or what you spend on housing subsidies, we are not reaching those people. So let me just sum up, if I can, Paul, by saying this. If you count all transfer payments and government collects all this data, they report it. They know how much we spend on food stamps. They know how much we spend on Medicaid. They know how much we spend on housing subsidies. And they report it, but they don't count it in their measure of household income. If you take government data and you count all transfer payments as income to people that get the transfer, and you count all taxes as income lost to people who pay the taxes, then here is basically what you get. Poverty rate is between 2 and 3%. Uh, the uh, the ratio of the top 20% to the bottom 20% is not 16.7 to 1, but 4 to 1. And then the bot blockbuster is counting all transfer payments as income and all taxes as income lost. The level of inequality is actually lower. Inequality of income is lower today than it was in 1947. So we have less inequality today than we had in 1947 because the rich are paying a much higher share of their income in taxes. Is that That's the other half of the story? The poor yep. are getting far more in transfer payments. In fact, transfer payments in real dollar terms have grown much quicker than income after taxes in the last 50 years. And as a result, income inequality has declined by about 3%, whereas the Census Bureau shows it up by more than 22%. Well, let's talk about the top end. Let's talk about the top 20%. How much more are they paying in taxes than they were back in 47? How, has the tax rate on the rich gone up? Yes, it has. Uh, it's It's even, if you look at, the whole income distribution, because now, if you notice, critics of, in, of of the American economy no longer talk about millionaires because they're millionaires. They talk about billionaires. And so we looked using IRS data at the average tax rate of Americans based on their income. And we find that up to an income of over $25 million a year, the tax rate rises to a high of about 41% the average tax rate. And then for a very small group of people, it starts to decline slightly. And for the top 400 people, um, a number of census uses because of the the Forbes 400 richest households. Well, this is this is what my wife keeps telling me. She says, you know, those billionaires, 
They're not paying taxes. Why are we paying taxes and they're not paying taxes? The rich don't pay taxes. According to the IRS, they are paying 36% of their income in taxes. They pay lower than people than the highest rate because they give vast amounts of money away. And they're virtually each one is a unique tax in a unique tax situation because they, unlike the vast majority of people, make most of their income with capital gains, which government taxes at a lower rate. But let me just give you one other number. It's very important. You hear this discussion. If these billionaires would pay their fair share, we could have all these government programs. If we took every penny of income that every billionaire in America makes that we're not already taking in taxes, we could pay for government for about a week. Well, yeah, but is that their reported income or is that is that the real income? Well, it's a question that that obviously has been discussed a lot, but let me explain. People want to take their wealth. How about if we just take their wealth? Well, the wealth is a different, uh, let me let me say it this way. Uh, if you look at their income, what they actually get in terms of income, uh, that the figures I gave you are valid. Now, some people on the left, for example, when ProPublica got the stolen tax data, uh, they didn't use the declared income that the IRS had on the tax return that was stolen. They made up an income number that was based on what they estimated that these rich people, uh, Warren Buffett, for example, would have made had they sold all of their assets and paid a capital gains tax on those on that asset appreciation. That's like saying your income is not really what you earn. It's what you would earn if you sold your house, if you cashed out your pension, if you sold all the assets you own every year. Well, nobody pays taxes on the sale of their assets. That is not a measure of income. Now, if, if you're unhappy, that Warren Buffett is very, very, very rich, then you're just going to be unhappy. But the point is, he didn't take that money away from anybody. He created it with being the greatest investor in history. And we all benefited because he invested our money to make all that money. We made more, he made more. Why are we unhappy? But let's get back. Let's go back now to this basic thing that you report here: that government statistics are giving us a radically wrong impression of the true uh, differences between the high-end people. You know, people like you and me who 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 make good money they are in the top twenty percent, and those who are poor in the bottom twenty percent. You're saying. There is a difference. There's four times difference, according to a good, fair calculation. And, but the government's saying it's 17%. Why is it? You explained the historical origins, but 
you know, governments can correct things based on changes. Why don't they correct the data? Well, let me tell you, they it would be a very good study for a political scientist to go back to 1947 the, and look at the decision that was made then, which I think was a reasonable decision that produced a, a statistic that was probably 95, 97% accurate. That decision makes sense to me as a person who knows some statistics and knows how economic data is gathered. The decisions that are far more questionable were decisions when the government started collecting all the data on food, food stamps, refundable tax credits, Medicaid, why it didn't include them in the measure of income. Now, in the book, we don't get into trying to uh, figure out their motive. We don't say that four times as much is the right amount, too little, too great. Our argument is we need to get the facts straight, and then we can have a debate. And I think there are a lot of things that are debatable based on getting the facts straight. Are we, given that we're providing after the pandemic, probably over $50,000 a year now when we get the final numbers, uh, to the average household and the bottom 20% of income earners, is there a better way to do it than doing it with all these programs and all of the bureaucratic um, uh, mechanism to provide the benefits? Um, are these programs really worth what they cost? Uh, those are legitimate things to debate, but instead we're debating uh, you see all this data out there where people say you've got X number of people who are hungry. Uh, well, the, we show that the Department of Agriculture's data on hunger is based on a survey where you ask almost 20 questions. And if anybody in a household answers three of them, uh, in a way that would suggest they have ever for one single day doubted that they were going to get enough to eat that day, that whole family's classified as being uh, uh, food insecure. So a lot of our data creates the way it's presented by government. You, you have been not really answering why. So... <laughs> The government's know. doing this. It doesn't have to do this. It could provide more accurate information. Who's the benefiting from this? Who are the who are the folks that I always like to look at? Follow the money, as they say. Who who's benefiting from these this misreporting? If there's false facts out there, somebody's benefiting from false facts. So who's benefiting from these false facts? Well, what basically. What is happening is, is there is a continuous argument that more and more resources should be transferred from people who are earning income to people who are not earning income or people who are earning low incomes. And the debate is occurring on a set of facts that grossly distort the reality. And I'll give you an example. When President Biden 
announced that uh, he would cut child poverty in half by dramatically increasing the refundable tax credit. I wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal pointing out that it wouldn't happen because the Census Bureau doesn't count refundable tax credits. And sure enough, when the tax credit was increased, the census didn't count it. And then they were forced to come out and say that if they had counted it as income, even though it came in a check, that if they had counted it as income, that it would have reduced child poverty, but they didn't count it as income. And so in the official number, it did not reduce child poverty. So what happens is we provide all these resources. The numbers don't change. Five years later, the argument is made that we're not providing enough. We provide more. It's not counted. And the debate goes on and on and on and on. So you're saying that really it's it's an argument over how much should be transferred from the rich to the poor. And if you get the facts somewhat off target, you help those who make the argument that we should still do more of that. Now, there's another sign to this, and that is Medicare and Medicaid are very inefficiently delivered. We have a very complicated medical system. There's an awful lot of red tape, an awful lot of regulation, a lot of procedures that people have to go through and the, and the insurance companies have to go through and, and the doctors have to go through. They, they just scream that they're spending most of their time filling out forms instead of meeting people. So can you really count that money as, it, can you count that as the same thing as money? Just because a poor person can go get a doctor free of cost and it's costing the taxpayer a lot of money, that's not the same thing as the person getting the money. Well, Medicaid, they're buying at such a discount because of the way the government forces the private sector to sell to them at a lower price, which means that our insurance costs are higher to cover it. Medicaid is only paying about 70 cents on the dollar. Medicare is paying more. Are they efficient? I think that is a legitimate debate. We make it clear in the book that the way census values all these things is at zero. We know that's wrong. Uh, what should they be valued at? We value them at cost to show what it costs to provide the benefit, whether or not it provides that level of benefits to the people who get it is one of the areas I think we should be debating. It's one of the legitimate issues that I think the book raises, which is it's we're provide we have basically, in terms of transfers, moved the bottom 20% into the American middle class. The difference in income of the bottom 60% of American earners is very, very small. But are we doing it efficiently? Could we do it better? Do we need all these government agencies? Those are all debatable points. But the point we're making is we're having a debate now based on numbers that don't count 
most of the government programs that we're adopting to deal with the problem, the number is saying it's measuring. And so we get a totally distorted debate. Now, maybe four to one is too much income inequality, uh, but it's certainly a different debate at four to one for the top 20 to the bottom 20 than 16.7 to one. Uh, and yeah, that, yeah. See, this that, is all true, but now, is this really up to the government to straighten this out? Let me ask you this question. Reporters, there's a lot of smart reporters out there. There's a lot of reporters that understand all of this. Why aren't they informing the public accurately? Because they will report this government statistics without any caution, without any equivocation. They'll just sort of simply say, you know, poverty has not fallen in the United States. It just, you know, wavers between 11 and 14 percent. So why don't reporters accurately report what's going on? Well, I would have to say that in economics, now I was an economist, um, I was always a little suspicious of these numbers, but it is so tempting to take the number the government provides and use it in your research or for journalists, use it in your article and not go behind the numbers. And that's what we tried to do in the book. I am hopeful that after this book, you will get more journalists who will go behind the numbers and look at what the reality is. And we go on in the book and show that all of these measures of uh, that claim that um, we've had 50 bad years of growth are verifiably false. Uh, that people that were in middle income in uh, 50 years ago, that, that the level of the top 20% 50 years ago is now achieved by many people who are in the second quintile of earners today. There's been a huge amount of progress, which the economy has not gotten credit for. Yeah, I think you say that in, uh, 85 or something like that, 85% of all Americans are better off uh, than they their parents were, right? Everybody, everybody's got a better deal than it, than it was in the past. And uh, and yet I, I hear that, you know, people, there's been no improvement in, in mobility, social mobility in the United States. Well, how can both those things be true? Well, they're not, they're not true. In fact, the only people that have not benefited from the doubling of real income in the last 50 years are the people who haven't worked. And one terrible thing that has been produced by this explosion of transfer payments is that 50 years ago, 68% of all prime work age persons in the bottom 20% of income earners worked. Today, only 36% work. So we have eliminated want for, statistically, not for every single person because of this two to 3% I talked about, but it's at a price of idleness. And everybody's speculating, why have a million and a half people not come back to work? 
from the pandemic? Well, my answer is when they uh, were, were laid off, they started getting all these government benefits that expanded rapidly during the pandemic. Many low-income people discovered that they were about as well off not working as they were working. You can't blame people for operating rationally. So you're saying that a lot of the reason why we're finding it so difficult to find workers today is because people are being paid so well not to work. Exactly. Can you imagine if 68% of the bottom 20% of workers in the country in income were still working today when the number is 36%? Uh, a big article in the Wall Street Journal today that you child care, it's almost impossible to find child care. And so people are leaving the labor force to take care of their children. Well, what happened to people who could provide child care? They're not working because they're receiving all these transfer payments. Um, so it does, you affect behavior uh, when you set transfer payments, when you set taxes. People behave more or less rationally over time, and you got to expect them to do that. Well, we talk a lot about racial inequality and equality across ethnic groups in the United States. How does your data change or your new way of looking at the data change the way we think about some of these differences across race and ethnic groups? They've declined, the differences in terms of income have declined dramatically. The percentage of college attendance based on race is closing very rapidly. It's not closing for Asians but it's closing for everybody else. It is interesting because uh, we have a lot of data now on our Asian population, which has gotten bigger. And uh, the success of the Asian community in America is astonishing, astonishing. Uh, and these are people that many of them came here, didn't speak the language, had no real skills, and uh, they are succeeding, which demonstrates convincingly to me that you can succeed in America, and most people do. That's the point. Um, so is it better to be born beautiful, rich, and brilliant? Yeah, it's a good deal if you got those things. But People that aren't those things succeed in America every day, and they do it in massive numbers. So this, I, we, our book basically shows that we're selling America short, uh, that America is still the land of opportunity. The American dream is still alive and well, but if you drop out of the labor market, you don't get the benefits of economic growth, and we also talk about the failure of education, especially in the primary and secondary levels, and how it's a, it's a form of discrimination uh, that not only, we, we have no idea how many people in these inner city schools have ability that's never discovered. And so we talk 
we show a lot of data about the impact of school choice. And we're not, there may be something better than school choice. We talk about it only because the data shows that it has had a tremendous impact. And if you want, if you can get people to work, and if you can give them access to quality education at the primary and secondary level, you're going to do a tremendous amount to broaden the base of opportunity in America. Well, that's a good way to end. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Senator uh, Graham. I appreciate your joining me on the Education Exchange. Well, listen, I appreciate being invited and best wishes to you. I have been speaking with former Senator Phil Graham from Texas. He's an economist and senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He's the co-author of a just released book entitled The Myth of American Inequality, How Government Biases Policy Debate. This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson. Please join me every Monday when another podcast is released on the Education Next website at noon Eastern time.